Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready to reach the White House and beyond with this special podcast. What do I mean? What happened at the White House? Let's go directly to our question of the day. Ramit, would you do an interview with me for the American College of Emergency Physicians Pain Management and Addiction Medicine section about your time at the White House? Dr. Bibb. Of course, I'm going to do an interview with you. I met you over 30 years ago, and I remember that because I knew you before I had children, and my oldest son is now 32 years old. Can you believe it? We met through the California chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians. You were one of the big-wig emergency doctors, and I was a young doctor in training who wanted to grow up and make an impact, just like you. And well, you, were the you president. certainly have succeeded, Ronnie. <laughs> And, uh, well, you've been such a great role model. Well, you, thank you so much. When you were, were you president of uh, California ASAP? In 2000. You were the president of the chapter, and I helped you with the mission of implementing state law that adopted the definition of emergency medicine condition as an individual considers an emergency. At that time, insurance companies were denying payment for emergency because they didn't consider some of the emergency visits as emergencies. And sometimes it's not as easy to say that a chest pain is a heart attack or an anxiety attack, um, even for a doctor. And I nominated you for an award that you received for your amazing support for young emergency physicians in training, um, like I was many years ago. And so, John, you are asking for a reverse podcast, and usually I'm the one who's asking the questions and doing the interview, but um, since you asked to interview me, we're going to do a special podcast, and I will now uh, hand you the reins for this High Truth podcast for your interview. Well, thank you. So, uh, Renee, when were you president of the California chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians? So, John, I I followed um, several years after uh, your leadership. I was president of the California chapter of American College of Emergency Physicians in 2000. I remember it was the turn of the century, and I just gave birth to my fourth child, Ariella. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, I'm very proud. Ariella now is in medical school, a Navy officer at Uniformed Services University, along with her older uh, sister. At the time, I was the, I think still am, the youngest president the college ever had at 37. How many years have you been a counselor at the American College of Emergency Physicians? All right. So I was a counselor on and off since I was a resident in 1991. 
At the time, I organized all 13 emergency department residencies together and started what we called California EMRA, and we lobbied to have a resident physician position on the California board. And that was a big deal because the older doctors were afraid of the young doctors like me, uh, the ones without any experience that, that we would take over. Um, and uh, so I served as a counselor for the California ASEP when I was in residency over 30 years ago. And I'm also proud that as a resident, I helped establish the young physician section and helped get the paperwork in order, collected signatures to start this new group. I think I even recruited you to sign the petition at the time. And once we became a section, the first resolution we introduced was about graduated membership dues. It was a memorable council meeting. Graduated dues was a hot debate. All in favor of graduated dues had to stand up and the tellers counted the orange cards in favor. And then we had to stand up and all the orange cards against uh, stood up. And at the end, we won, but it was a, a close vote. There were people at the ASAP National Board of Directors who were angry, and I was accused of jeopardizing the financial health of ASAP by offering younger doctors a discount on membership. And of course, now we know who is on the right side of history. And the other thing I did with the Young Physician section was start a job fair. I had a handful of groups donate money for f um, food in a small conference room at a hotel, and now the ASAP job fair is huge. I walked around the job fair exhibit hall last year, and uh, we have come a long way from the little room that I started years ago. Wow. So you were recently in Sacramento, the California state uh, capital, uh, promoting a bill on fentanyl. Is that right? Yes. Yes, I was. I'm very proud that California passed. SB 864, Tyler's Law, that requires all hospitals in California to include fentanyl whenever a drug test is ordered. It is the first law that I wrote myself and helped navigate through the legislative process. It received bipartisan support and passed in record time. And my partner um, in that legislation was Julie Shamish, whose son Tyler died of fentanyl just a few days after leaving an emergency department where he tested negative for drugs. Julie was assured by the emergency physician that her son was not using fentanyl, um, and she therefore felt safe taking him home instead to a rehab facility. But the emergency physician was wrong. The drug test for opiates does not include synthetic opioids such as fentanyl. And I learned a lot about drug testing while at the White House and convened the committee that oversaw federal drug testing policies. There are three FDA-cleared reagents costing about 75 cents a piece. If you are testing for methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, then why would you exclude fentanyl, the biggest drug killer in America? Now, every hospital in America can include fentanyl when a toxicology test is ordered, even rural hospitals. And I know that some emergency physicians say, I don't need a drug test to treat patients. And I would say that's true. You don't need a CBC or a CT scan or most tests to treat acute conditions or overdoses. That makes you good emergency physicians. But having that data and that drug test results confirms the diagnosis, promotes a prescription for naloxone for someone who may not have an opiate use disorder, triggers connection for addiction treatment, and very importantly, aids in the conversation with patients that motivates change. 
This data and conversation makes the difference between a good emergency doctor and a great emergency doctor. And we have a toolkit on fentanyl testing that I created. It is on the California ASEP website for any hospital or state in the country that wants to implement this project. Fentanyl testing is not going to solve the fentanyl crisis, but the data engages the medical community in solutions. Well, Ronit, you certainly have street creds. How did you become interested in addiction medicine? That's an interesting story. I didn't like come out and say, hey, I want to grow up and be an addiction uh, specialist. My interest in addiction medicine was born out of the mistakes I made in the opioid prescription epidemic. I was the vice chair of the California Medical Association Council on Legislation when we coerced physicians to vote for mandatory education on pain and eliminate the triplicate prescriptions required at the time to be able to prescribe oxycodone. That was a mistake. That law is still on the books today. It didn't smell right to me at the time, but I was a young doctor and I followed along and conceded to the experts who supposedly knew better. We were told at the time that physicians, especially emergency physicians, were not doing enough for pain. Government mandated education. What did that do? That gave us the message to prescribe more. And overnight, the medical community became drug dealers. Our emergency departments became candy land for Vicodin. And our patients presented with so many different stories on how to get drugs. Do you remember those days, John? Yes, there's no question that emergency physicians and physicians in general were prescribing uh, way too much uh, in the way of opiates in the past. Um, and uh, we're starting to uh, uh, realize our mistakes and uh, move forward. Um, uh, I hope we don't repeat this history again. I do think we need to learn from history. And overprescribing hit home for me. That's why I was a early in adapting change. Aaron Rubin was a boy from Poway where I lived and he overdosed on Oxycontin. I learned about it on Yom Kippur. On the day God judges who will live and who will die, Aaron was in the ICU fighting for his life. And Aaron didn't die. He lived and still lives with paraplegia and brain damage from prolonged hypoxia. And his mother, Sherry, became an advocate in preventing kids from overdosing on prescription drugs. Sherry reached out to me to ask, why are there so many doctors who are prescribing opioids and how do we prevent that? And she introduced me to many mothers and fathers whose children died of prescriptions. That was in 2008. At that time, doctors were yelled at and threatened if they didn't give opioids. Their Prescani scores would tank if they said no. But I was shown a different patient population, one that was yelling to their politicians because their children died, and they were angry at the medical community for overprescribing. So I used my organizational skills to bring together the medical community. I created a committee called Emergency Medicine Oversight Commission for San Diego. We brought together all the 20 emergency departments in San Diego County, and so the emergency physicians were organized. And so round one of narcotic guidelines was voluntary and just for emergency departments. And that system failed. Within two weeks, I received a call from the director of one of our emergency departments, and he was alarmed about the sudden influx of pain patients. His emergency department did not implement the guidelines, while the nearby two other emergency departments did. And word sped quickly on the streets 
and his hospital became the candy land for opioids. So we needed a different approach. We needed to bring the entire medical community together on the same page. Primary care physicians were sending their patients to the emergency department for opioids, and we as emergency physicians were telling their patients to go back to their regular doctor, and the patients were yo-yos in the middle, and that wasn't fair. And on top of that, the specialists were piling on opioids on top of whatever was being given by the pain doctors and others. So I created a new prescription drug abuse medical task force that worked side by side by our county San Diego uh, task force. And we had representatives from various specialties and hospital systems. We wrote clinical guidelines for pain treatment three years before the CDC came up with their guidelines. We created universal medication agreements for chronic medications. And we developed a one San Diego system for all medical providers, regardless of specialty, to follow guidelines such as one physician and one pharmacist for all chronic controlled prescriptions. And this program was successful. It was transparent to the medical community and the public, and it was adopted by California ASEP, Hospital Association, Department of Public Health, and San Diego was re even received an award for this project. Well, very good. Uh did you personally do research on opioid deaths? Yes. You know, when I got together with physicians, they would say, you know, if patients just follow directions, they wouldn't die. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if that's true. So I worked with our medical examiner and published research that I call the Death Diaries. I reviewed every single person who died of a medication and compared their toxicology results to prescription 12 months before they died. The research changed my life as a doctor. I would see patients in the emergency department with cures reports, the California version of PDMP, prescription drug monitoring programs, and their report looked like those of people who died. I saw some common themes in people who died and used that to advocate for change and safety. And in addition, I didn't see just an opioid problem. It was a combination of medication problem. 80% 80 80 of people who died, died of a cocktail of medications. And then we repeated the study with a team from USC, and there were 800 doctors who prescribed to people who died in 2017. That's a lot of doctors, 800. And we sent letters from the medical examiner, delicately worded to be educational and non-accusatory. We sent those letters to 400 doctors, half of the group, informing them that their patient died of a medication they prescribed and directed them to education. And then the control arm were 400 doctors who had patients who died who didn't give, uh, who didn't get a letter. And then we analyzed this prescribing behavior of the doctors who received this intervention and those who didn't. And we found that the doctors who received a letter prescribed less morphine equivalents of opioids and had less new start patients who were initiated into opioids. And then um, we did the study again. It was just published uh, this month in JAMA, January um, 2023, of the long-term outcome of that one intervention. And we showed that that intervention had long-lasting effects as well. Wow. So uh, you made it onto the show, The Doctors, for uh, this study. Is that right? I did. I had five minutes of fame, and my hair and makeup was all done right in Hollywood. So that was fun. And then the data was also used to create the dashboard that is currently on the Cures 2.0 modernized system for the California PDMP system. So how did you uh, come to have a position at the White House? The White House. 
I was obsessed with the issue of safe prescribing and creating change within the medical community. And I started talking across the country, offering technical support to coalitions who wanted to start similar projects to what we were doing in San Diego. And on one visit to Washington, D.C., I was invited to the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. I invited the new drug czar, Jim Carroll, to visit San Diego. And I was surprised that he agreed. And he came down to San Diego, and I provided a nice tour for him and a large binder full of materials. And inside this binder, I, I slipped in a description for a chief medical officer. I didn't say anything. I just put the little paper in the package, and I didn't think he'd ever see it or even open the package. But he did. And that evening, he called me and offered me a job. Wow. So what is ONDCP? ONDCP, the White House Office of Natural Drug Control Policy, is one of the offices under the Executive Office of the President. I was one of 2,000 employees for the president. The head of ONDCP, the drug czar, answers to the chief of staff of the president of the United States and advises on drug policy. ONDCP controls drug policy of the federal government by publishing annually the National Drug Control Strategy, and it also controls the budget of 19 federal agencies that are involved with drugs, such as health and human services, transportation, defense, education, agriculture, and more. Okay. Did you uh, manage to continue uh, working as an emergency physician while you were employed at the White House? I did. It, it was a long commute, San Diego to Washington, D.C. every month. Um, I was offered a presidential appointment or federal appointment, but that meant giving up clinical medicine, and I was not ready for that. Um, I noticed that a job at the White House is an endangered species job. People don't last. And with creative employment contracting, I was brought in as an expert consultant and able to continue doing shifts um, in the emergency department and um, working um, for the president. And shout out to my wonderful emergency physician colleagues at Pacific Emergency Providers at Scripps Mercy Hospital who tolerated such scheduling. So what were your goals uh, when you took on this job in Washington, D.C.? I went to the job bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I used to think, you know, if only I was in charge, I could fix a drug problem. And so be careful what you wish for because the pressure was on. And my overall goal was to end the supply side of prescription deaths. I had a vision for getting that done. A lot of people thought the villain in the opioid crisis were the doctors, but I didn't think so. To me, doctors were an asset. As a physician, I'm a physician through and through, and I felt I knew how to communicate with the medical community in a sympathetic manner that to present data that drives change. We don't need to be micromanaged as doctors. We are high achievers as individuals and as a profession, and we can be shown goals, and we can come up with creative and innovative solutions. John, I made myself a list of 10 projects that I wanted to do before I started my first day on the job. And I wanted to show data that reflected the difference in the supply chain from medical versus illicit drugs. That graph typically represents opioids together with heroin and other illicit drugs, but it's unfair to blame the medical community and doctors for all drug deaths. So that was goal number one, the right data to present to drive change. And also on my list was CMS formulary changes, uh, um, like what I did with San Diego, where I saw 
progressive health plans were able to take off um, uh, uh, holy trinity combinations and high-dose opioids. They were able to catch that from a health plan end. And I thought, what's the biggest health plan? CMS. Maybe they could do that and not pay for prescriptions that were killing people. I also had an issue with financial incentives and patient satisfaction scores and promoting unsafe prescribing. At one point, I wrote an ASEP resolution about patient satisfaction scores, which was adopted. I also wanted a goal of creating a dashboard for marijuana harms like we had for opioids. I wanted to X the X waiver, the requirement for doctors to register with the DEA and take an eight-hour course in order to prescribe a single drug, buprenorphine, that treats opioid use disorder. And the X waiver was an unnecessary barrier and promoted stigma for people who had a substance use disorder. Part of my 10 goals was also to promote public health response to overdose clusters. I've always been jealous of infectious diseases. At the time, I was jealous of gonorrhea and chlamydia. They were getting public health approaches such as mapping and prevention and treatment. And that was before we had the outbreak of COVID, uh, where we had hotel rooms and a whole of government approach. And so I wanted really a similar public health approach to drug overdoses. Fentanyl, by the way, not COVID, is the number one killer for Americans age 18 to 45. So what were your beliefs uh, that uh, led you to these uh, goals? Reli beliefs, okay. So belief sounds like a religion, but my analysis of local research and historical research taught me that by focusing on the supply side of drugs, we can end or at least manage the problem. That was an upstream approach, closing the leak in the boat, not just bailing out the water. For example, locally, when I approached a health plan, they agreed to remove Soma and Xanax, two milligrams from their formulary. And within a year, the number of patients on the holy trinity or unholy trinity of opioids, benzodiazepines, and soma went from triple digits to single digits. The health plan did that with no complaints or loss of star ratings, and they allowed a grandfather clause that focused only on new prescription and let people who are already on that combination continue. And we could also learn from tobacco. We greatly decreased tobacco use by focusing on upstream side of new users. Getting people to quit tobacco downstream was very important, of course, but the major reduction in use was by preventing new users. And as an emergency physician, I'm a strong believer in primary prevention. We treat car accidents, but isn't it better to prevent them in the first place? We treat heart attacks, but isn't it better to prevent heart disease? We treat pediatric poisonings and overdoses, but isn't it better to have childproof packaging of medications? And similarly, primary prevention for drug use works. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cures, and that's the principle I had for the opioid crisis. We wanted to prevent a new generation of Americans who became addicted and at the same time manage and keep alive the patients who are on buckets of opioids and other medications. And of course, people who had a substance use disorder deserve treatment and compassion with no stigma. What were your strategies to advance your agenda? They say in Washington, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and I knew nobody. So I went out to meet people. 
and I visited with a few physicians who work for the executive office of the president. I met with the leaders of NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I met with NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, CDC, DEA, FDA, SAMHSA, Surgeon General, and the rest of the alphabet soup of government that I was just learning all their acronyms. And I did know one important group, and that was ASIP, the American College of Emergency Physicians. ASIP is my family. And a big shout out to Jeff Davis and Laura Wooster, who were behind the scenes in helping me and advising me. Um, and by meeting people, I was able to convene the Interagency Medical Leadership Council. That was fun. I got to bring together medical leaders of all the different federal agencies. We learned the goals from each other, cross silos, work together on safe prescribing for all CNS depressants, not just for opioids. And by the way, doctors would be alarmed to learn how much government control happens to physicians with no clinical knowledge or experience. I was the only practicing physician working on drug policy, and there were very few physicians working on health policy overall that had working clinically actively. And at meetings, I would ask people, who took the eight-hour X waiver course? And I'd be the only one raising my hand. All right. Um, what are some of the other policies and projects you worked on? Oh, thanks for asking. So the White House measures success, not just in dollars spent and policy implementation, but also with outreach and convening of stakeholders. Billions of dollars were directed at opioids, but the major problem in California was methamphetamines. It takes a year for a budget cycle to go, but I was able to advocate that opioid dollars could also be spent on methamphetamine. I was also honored to be part of NAM, the National Academy of Medicine. They have an action collaborative on countering the opioid epidemic. I was able to organize a webinar for the White House with NAM on healthcare professionals' educational engagement to support safer prescribing and better care. In that webinar, we had the alphabet soup of medicine, um, AAMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges, ACGME, the American Council of Graduate Medical Education, and ACCME, the American Council on Continuing Medical Education. I also learned about the importance of addiction medicine and the workforce behind addiction medicine from the American College of Academic Addiction Medicine. And we organized an event at the White House to promote this workforce. You know, we have palliative care services at most large hospitals. We should have, similarly, addiction medicine services at most hospitals. And just think about it. If we admit a patient with endocarditis from drug use, that patient will be seen by a hospitalist, a cardiologist, an infectious disease. That patient may be sitting in a hospital for six weeks of IV antibiotics without addressing the root cause of the infection or um, the substance use disorder. So, Renee, uh, have you had any luck getting health plans to uh, pay for uh, addiction medicine services? That's a good question. And the White House struggled with that issue as well. Some health plans were doing well and others were misbehaving and not covering addiction treatment for their patients. I'm sure this is no big surprise to emergency physicians who are currently being cheated by some unscrupulous health plans and as a subsequently uh, were facing serious uh, financial pain. But um, for the health plans, one of the solutions 
uh, was to bring parity. And so we invited people to the White House. Once again, the White House holds events to solve problems. And that strategy actually works. People are honored to come to the White House, attend events, and really want to help. So we brought the health plans to the White House to turn the tide, improving access to addiction care and obstacles to parity. We were advocating for parity in addiction treatment like we have for mental health and physical health. And at our workshop, we shared best practices um, by the supporting health plans. And do you want to hear some more projects? Please. So I was at ONDCP during the outbreak of E-Valley, the electronic cigarette and vaping associated lung illnesses. I witnessed the start and the end of the CDC command center dealing with young people dying from vaping, mostly marijuana products. E-Valley was a dress rehearsal for COVID, and ONDCP was involved in the E-Valley response. And while I assisted in editing guidance on E-Valley, I was really proud of working on an out-of-the-box solution. At the time, the DEA was leading take-back programs for prescription drugs. I proposed adding to that program taking back vape pens. And how that happened is a story in itself that includes White House lawyers reaching out to the EPA, being told that our office does not deal with tobacco. But I kept pushing and didn't want to hear the hundred reasons why we couldn't do something. I wanted to hear about how we can do something. But then I was told, stand down, Dr. Lev. That means no. So, so I stopped. And after all that, at the end of the story, came on Twitter And the first lady tweeted that the DEA is taking back vape pens. And that's how I learned that my proposal was accepted. And in another project, I worked with the Department of Homeland Security, National Security Council, and the National Institute on Standards and Technology, NIST, to develop a voluntary community standard for drug overdoses. It was to be modeled after the National Fire Protection Association Active Shooter Standards, and we call the proposal CREDO, the Community Response to Drug Overdoses. Lots of acronyms. Um, But that project wasn't completed. I did bring it back to San Diego, where I now chair the San Diego CREDO Task Force, which brings together various professions in order to approach drug overdoses. We did contact tracing for COVID. And what if we did contact tracing for overdoses? Because for each person that overdoses and dies, there are people around that individual who are at risk. And by intervening, we can save lives. So how was the marijuana issue approached? Ah, marijuana. Marijuana was called the M word at the White House. It was not to be discussed until after elections, and I was not allowed to discuss marijuana policies, but I was given permission to talk about what I see as an emergency physician. And every day, every shift, I treated marijuana poisonings. By the way, our White House office knew all about scrometing, screaming, and vomiting associated with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Um, I didn't get to create the marijuana dashboard that I wanted, but I did create a bibliography on marijuana harms, and the Surgeon General did publish an advisory on marijuana and the developing brain. And I took my White House bibliography and expanded that to create a medical library for Isaac, the International Academy on Science and Impact of Cannabis. You could see it on isaac1.org. And I used that data in a resolution for ASEP that ASEP passed about implementing education of harms on cannabis. What happened with the X waiver? You know, as the pandemic hit, 
the White House was open to cutting the red tape and innovation and innovative solutions. And I shared pictures of myself with full PPE and stories of the emergency department with the office. And I reminded people that I did not need eight hours of education to treat COVID, a disease that was yet to be uh, established and even named. And why did I need eight hours to use buprenorphine? I didn't need eight hours to prescribe opioids. So I rallied a list of supporters to the X waiver, including ASEP. Um, and there was a major policy shift for our office. And Director Carroll went out to bat and were able to remove the X in the X waiver and remove the eight hours of education. Unfortunately, new administration came in, undid all the previous administration's policies, even popular ones such as Xing the X waiver. And the Biden administration left out the eight-hour education, but put back in the X. And by X, I mean doctors have to register with the government in order to use buprenorphine. Not ideal. And just recently, Congress uh, stepped in, passed the MAT Act, removing the X waiver, yay, but they brought back mandatory education. Boo. Um, so I told you what I think of government-mandated education on physicians, Last time we had such mandates, we started the opioid prescription epidemic. How'd you do on your uh, goals overall? So I did not accomplish my top 10 list that I created on my first day of the job, but I added some new accomplishments that I didn't think of at first. Um, so let me share a funny story. On DCP reviews thousands of pages of documents daily from all federal agencies. They have to give their stamp of approval. That's their way of, of um, approving their budget and, and uh, you know, bringing a unified voice on policy. It's really an endless job. So many documents, so much paper. Um, so one day I was given a document from CMS to review about decreasing the electronic health uh, record burdens on physician. That caught my eye. We were in the middle of implementing Epic at my hospital, and as an older physician, it was causing me a lot of stress. Overnight, the hospital fired the secretaries, and I was a secretary. I was putting in orders, putting them in wrong, trying to fix them, not doing that right, and it just made me want to cry. A job at the White House was much less stressful. So I was reading the CMS document and made an emotional edit. I added in there that nurses and ancillary staff could be allowed to enter orders. A few weeks later, I received a call about my edit, and I thought, oh, no, I'm busted. It was not my place to muck with CMS's document. But I wasn't busted. They wanted to support my edits and just needed clarification. I wish I had more time to do more similar evidence. So my top 10 goals um, from my first day on the job weren't accomplished. CMS did not change their formularies. They're a very difficult agency to move. I learned a lot about patient satisfaction scores, but didn't have the backing from AMA or ASEP or other medical organizations to make that change. But importantly, the overall goal of ending the opioid prescription epidemic was accomplished. We no longer have a prescription opioid crisis. Look at that data of supply chain of drugs and why people die. According to Cures, the California Prescription Drug Monitoring System, we are at a record low of opioid prescription, the lowest since we had that system. And according to IQVIA, the national prescription reports for the nation, opioids went down significantly, so much so that they're not even tracking that in their annual report. Well, we have a terrible opioid crisis now. That's true, John. Sadly, 
we have an illicit fentanyl crisis that is not coming from prescriptions. It's coming from China and Mexico. 108,000 overdoses a year, 60% of them driven by fentanyl, an airplane crash a day of deaths, which is just tragic and should be more of an outrage. And that's why I support families against fentanyl in declaring illicit fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. I believe that the upstream solutions in decreasing the supply from China and Mexico are important. What else are you up to now? You know, they say if you want friends in Washington, D.C., get a dog. Um, but I made a lot of friends in Washington, D.C., and many of them have been guests on my High Truths on Drugs Addiction podcast. I am on season three and have weekly shows that talk about all aspects of drugs. I have an empty nest now with all kids out of the house, and they all grew up going to ASEP scientific assemblies. My oldest son is a dentist, my second son is an engineer, and my two daughters are in medical school. And so I miss them, but once a week I babysit my granddaughter, and that's really a privilege to be able to do so. I aged out of night shifts, but I do stay up at night working on various drug policies and projects and... After over 30 years and 100,000 patients, I'm still doing shifts in the emergency department. And we as emergency physicians, we sacrifice a lot, work in a harsh environment, make tremendous impact on each and every patient, each and every shift. And at ONDCP, the motto was we save lives. But in the emergency department, that's where we actually save lives. So being on the front lines as an emergency physician is the greatest honor. Well, Ronnie, thank you. Uh, I'm going to share a story about you. Uh, years ago, you wrote a joke article about what you would do in a typical day. And it started out, I get up and I run 10 miles. Then I am home and I prepare a big breakfast for my family. I get everybody off to school. Then I'm off to the emergency room for a 12-hour shift. I get home, I fix dinner. Uh, and then I uh, read journals, and I don't remember what else. I think I said I also feed the homeless. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I believe it all because uh, you're such an incredible uh, go-getter. I, I believe the whole article. Uh, well, Ronnie, uh, thank you. Wait, wait. So the punchline to that article was that I hate running. My husband did not marry me for any domestic skills. And I don't know how my kids are doing. Um, so the, the whole the whole intro it was like introduce yourself to the board, and I just read I just wrote this like ridiculous statement, and none of it was true. <laughs> yeah, and I believed all of it. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for your uh, work on the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, physicians and emergency physicians in the past did very poorly uh, with uh, opioids. Uh, and now because of physicians like you and others, uh, we're starting to make uh, some real progress and uh, save some lives. So uh, thank you very much for all of your work on behalf of uh, emergency physicians and patients. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.